This week on the Science of Politics, Diversity and the Advance of Liberalism. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. White liberals are quickly moving leftward on racial issues in what has been called the Great Awakening. The reaction to Trump has only accelerated the move, which suggests identity politics and liberal economics might be able to rise together. But can progressive economic ideas appeal to Americans at a time of increasing diversity? Or will whites react to rising diversity and inequality by limiting redistribution? Today, I talked to Zach Goldberg of Georgia State University about his new tablet magazine article, America's White Saviors. He finds that white liberals are greatly increasing their perceptions of discrimination, their tolerance of academic identity politics, and their support for immigration and affirmative action coaxed along by rising liberalism in social and online media. But I also talked to Emily Wager of the University of North Carolina about her new working paper, People Like Us. She finds that in diverse states, rising economic inequality is making publics more conservative on economic policy, as whites feel less connected to the people of their state. Like the international pattern, it may be hard to simultaneously advance diversity and social welfare. Despite the global norm, something different has been happening with white liberals in the U.S. lately. Goldberg finds they're growing much more liberal on race-connected issues and that it precedes Trump. White liberals and Democrats, when it comes to racial issues, and not just racial issues also, although as I'll probably explain later, issues like immigration and even the Palestinian conflict has kind of been racialized in a sense. A lot of these issues, the white liberals and Democrats have become more progressive than at any point in uh, history, or at least in the past few decades. This shift has been not only dramatic, but also very recent, meaning very, also very sudden. And uh, importantly, not all of this can be attributed to the, uh, rise, the rise of Trump, you know, the Trump backlash theory. There's evidence, I mean, you, you could trace it even as early back as, you know, 2011 with immigration. You could even trace it back to the 2006 immigration protests. And these attitudes are, were really in a lot, in, you know, on, on many counts, there are uh, unprecedented. Uh, both the, both the, the increase in, in the progressivism is unprecedented and just how quickly things have really developed. There is a real democratic backlash to Trump but we overestimate his role in the changes in attitudes. A lot of these trends are being viewed as a, I guess, as an act of resistance or defiance against Trump's rhetoric and policies that, you know, Trump's divisiveness, his bombastic or racial rhetoric and has really polarized the Democratic Party and has really, I guess, elicited strong feelings of you know, anger and, and obviously sympathy towards other minority groups, and that a lot of this movement is directly stemming from the Trump phenomenon. And the truth is, is that, you know, this, this account is, is, is partially true. I mean, just to give a few examples, when we look at attitudes towards the construction of the southern border wall, for instance, which, you know, I, I've traced managed to find data going back to the early 90s, we do see that attitudes, you know, towards the wall, towards building the wall, really only started really souring, only really started heading in a downward trajectory once Trump uh, enters the campaign race. And we find the same thing, you know, when it comes to 
for example, uh, viewing immigra illegal immigration as a very serious problem for decades. You know, white Democrats and also white liberals, you know, were, were, were likely, you know, majorities would say that it, it considered it a very serious problem. And then obviously Trump starts opening his mouth. Well, you could see the attitudes or those saying that it's not a serious problem increase fairly rapidly. There are obviously attitudes which do appear to be fit the, I guess, conventional narrative of a, I guess, an elite driven, you know, polarization, you know, Trump may taking stands on all these issues and this really triggering a, a backlash on the part of political opposition. But on other, on other counts, uh, this doesn't necessarily hold true. I mean, if you look at I mean, my analysis of the data shows that a lot of these trends really began somewhere between uh, 2011 and, and 2014, which is obviously before Trump. I mean, maybe he was engaging in birtherism at that point, but he, you know, he had yet to officially and formally announce his uh, candidacy. And we see attitudes toward perceptions of discrimination against blacks, you know, sympathy towards illegal immigrants. You know, that went up. I mean, in 2006, there only 22 percent of white liberals said they were very sympathetic toward illegal immigrants and their families. And that doubled by 2014. And we also see, uh, you know, similarly, you know, with attitudes towards the Palestinians, for example, where for decades, since 1978 up until 2014, you have majority or, or most a plur a, a plurality of liberals, white liberals saying they sympathize more with the Palestinians than, uh, excuse me, with Israel than the Palestinians. And that, oh, completely, that trend, that decades-long trend completely evaporated. But Wager finds that diversity and support for reducing economic inequality through new liberal policy do not seem to go together in the American states. We know that as income inequality has risen in the U.S., the public has responded with less demand for policies that serve to narrow inequality. And so my research asks why. And I theorize that Americans believe in conditional equality, where they'll support equalizing policies as long as they perceive the beneficiaries as people like me, people like themselves. However, as the country has grown more racially diverse, citizens are less likely to perceive other citizens as people like themselves. And so the, one of the ways I test my theory is I leverage variation in both income inequality and racial homogeneity of the American states. And I use overtime public opinion data and find evidence that in response to inequality in racially homogenous states, the public will prefer government to do more, whereas in less homogeneous states, they prefer government to do less in terms of economic interventions and so forth. She says that's consistent with the international pattern, even though we tend to think of diverse and liberal states like California. The conventional wisdom in political science, I mean, a lot of this has been studied in comparative politics, right, where the basic premise is that in racially homogenous, na racially homogenous nations, there's much more re robust welfare systems typically than in heterogeneous states like the U.S. And so, you know, my line of argument might sound pretty familiar to comparativists, but I can see how it can push back against the conventional wisdom. I mean, basically, you know, there's clearly, you know, the, the cases like California or New York, but 
I make the case that on average, over time, diversity has resulted in people moving away from wanting government to do more. And, you know, even if we consider some of these states like California and New York that are fairly liberal, those are also some the most unequal states in the country. So one could argue that why aren't these states even more liberal than they actually are now? Wager started her research following on prior work showing a negative relationship between diversity and economic liberalism. A couple years ago, I took a time series course with my advisor, Jim Stimson at UNC, and for my seminar paper, I decided I wanted to do an extension of a 2010 paper by Nathan Kelly and Peter Enns, who are UNC PhDs, that puts forward this idea that inequality in the U.S. begets conservatism conservatism in the public. So in a way they describe as self-reinforcing. And there's been some critiques of their paper, the methods they've used and so forth. But I mean, it doesn't change the undeniable fact that there are huge economic disparities in the U.S. and Americans by and large don't want government to intervene. So I had wanted to extend the paper. I wanted to ask, you know, if we extend this series, you know, past the financial crisis. Do we still find the same relationship? If we look at, you know, specific policies, you know, welfare versus taxation, do we see, you know, a different relationship? And then I became more interested, not necessarily, not necessarily in the idea that inequality results in more conservatism, but why it does. Goldberg is trying to fill in the other side, understanding liberal attitudes. He says we focused mainly on an anticipated anti-diversity backlash associated with Trump. When Trump got elected, there's a lot of interest in the, you know, understanding how could this happen? You know, well, there must be something going on in the minds of the people, obviously, that voted for Trump. So <laughs> obviously it makes sense to focus a lot of the attention on understanding the psychology of Trump voters. And that is definitely an important, uh, I'm, I'm not obviously demeaning that research or belittling it. I, I think it is important research, but it has created, I guess, a blind spot in the, in the sense that, well, that's only one part of the equation. What might have been, what might have Trump voters been reacting or responding to? And also, well, what, expo- I mean, are liberal, are Trump, the attitudes of Trump voters, are they that dissimilar from the attitudes of earlier, you know, generations of conservative voters or Republican voters? And what I found was is that there's really not that much movement, that there's really not that much. Obviously, in immigration, maybe there was an increase in the percent that wanted to decrease immigration, illegal immigration. But you don't find these drastic shifts, or at least of the magnitude that you see with liberals among Trump voters in terms of racial resentment, in terms of even in terms of, I guess, I mean, I, I, I hate some of these measures. I'm very critical of them. But even modern sexism, you don't find these drastic increases among Trump voters. But what you do see is these drastic increases in the other direction among you know liberal voters. And I began this really compiling all this data uh, with my observation that there has been a record increase in percent of, of white liberals that are supportive of increasing immigration. And when I turn to the literature to try to figure out, okay, what predicts, and we, we know so much, I, mean, I would say, I, I don't, I mean, don't quote me on it, but I, I feel like they're 95, 90 to 95% of the literature on immigration attitudes focuses on opposition. Uh, there seems to be a, a pro-immigration bias in the political science literature, meaning Attitudes that we all, I mean, it's almost like pro-immigration sentiment is taken for granted and, you know, opposition is treated as abnormal. 
When in fact, I mean, if you look around the world, uh, I mean, opposition to immigration is really the norm, whereas, you know, attitudes that call for increasing immigration are are fairly exceptional. Uh, And we don't really have uh, that much research on that front that explains why this is the case. The little literature that we have available is very, I guess it's kind of atheoretical in the sense that it really says, well, okay, it's more correlational, meaning that, okay, higher education correlates uh, more positive attitudes towards immigrants, greater cosmopolitanism. But there's really no, there's no development of a theory that could really explain, you know, how some of these variables relate to wanting to increase immigration. And it's not, and I'm not just saying, and, and this is what also interests me, was what separates somebody that just wants to keep immigration levels where they're at? And where they're at, since 2000, has been around 1 million immigrants a year, which is pretty a large, a large increase, which has led to large demographic shifts. So the question is, what, what distinguishes people that just want to keep immigration levels where they are, where there's just really just 1 million on average per year, from those that's, that want to increase it even further, or not even increase them a little, but increase them a lot? Let's dig into each project. Goldberg finds that white liberals have moved so far that they now like minority groups more than whites. For the first time, have a pro-minority bias, meaning they are more likely to rate other minority groups, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims, more warmly than they do their white in-group. And that disparity emerged in 2016, and it has grown since. It, it, it was around, on average, a four, three to four-point disparity in favor of minorities in 2016, and if you look at other recent surveys, there's one in Pew, and then there's also another in the ANES pilot survey. This has grown in the ANES pilot survey. It's grown to somewhere along among white liberals to 15 degree separation. It's not just that there's a relative disparity, meaning white liberals feel more warm or towards they, – they, they, they do feel more warmly towards minorities, but they also feel more warm towards uh, – but they also still feel – have warm feelings towards whites – you also find that a sizable minority of uh, white liberals, somewhere around 26%, express open negativity or open unfavorable feelings towards whites. He thinks this builds on differences in liberal and conservative personality traits and their sensitivity to justice violations. People naturally differ in the extent that they are sensitive towards injustice in, in the world. I mean, people that tend to be higher on justice sensitivity, they tend to ruminate more frequently on injustice. They tend to have a much lower threshold of what counts for injustice, and they are very sensitive to you know uh, harm uh, being uh, done to other people. And obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying it because there's different dimensions within justice sensitivity. There's observer sensitivity, which means being a witness to an injustice. There's perpetrator sensitivity where one feels that they are responsible for potentially the harm caused to other parties. But I, I guess the, the central point here is that there are individual differences in sensitivity to these to certain moral violations and that liberals, all these traits tend to correlate with higher liberalism as well. If liberals are higher or more sensitive to these injustices and we are entering a, especially a digital media environment in which 
you know, moral injustices tend to really captivate audiences and they attract, they, they draw a lot of retweets, they draw a lot of likes, and obviously the algorithms are there to point you towards similar content in the future. We're at the point where these moral emotions, which were maybe less active in previous decades, are now interfacing with a new media context, which is arousing them and eliciting them a lot more frequently and generating really strong moral emotions. Collective moral emotions activated by specific injustices can spill over into lots of other attitudes. Collective guilt, collective shame, you know, in-group directed anger. And these are all uh, emotions that stem or are responsive to the perception that, well, I guess in this case, the perception that one is enjoying an illegitimate advantage, illegitimate economic, social advantage, that one is benefiting from the historical wrongdoings that were perpetrated against another uh, group or party. Not everybody gets to that awareness. You know, there's a lot of, there tends to be a lot of motivated reasoning, and which is why not everybody feels guilt, because there's usually tactics, cognitive tactics that could really, that that serve to, you know, uh, rebut them. But uh, liberals, uh, you know, given their predispositions, they tend to, because they, they, they tend to, they don't have the just world bias that conservatives do. They're less likely to view inequality as uh, natural. Um, you know, guilt is definitely something that's harder for them uh, to avoid. And it, it be, makes the realization or perception that they are privileged, un, un, illegitimately so, relative to other groups. The guilt and shame that is activated from... I guess one historical wrongdoing can manifest in sympathy towards those that are perceived to be similarly situated, similarly disadvantaged, or maybe not to the same degree, but also weaker or perceived to be oppressed groups. And just to give you an example, I mean, there's one paper found that shame over and guilt over the British abuse of uh, Iraqi prisoners during the Second Gulf War, that really, that, that corresponded to greater sympathy and greater positivity towards local Pakistani immigrants. We find the same thing in Germany, where guilt over German Germany's treatment and persecution of the Jews, those that tend to feel these higher feelings of guilt also show, show greater openness and greater warmth and positivity towards, you know, ethnic Turks that, you know, uh, reside in Germany. He looks at Google search and media data, which both show a big spike in woke social justice concerns. I began with just a simple searches on Google Trends for, I guess, some of the, oh, I guess, not just woke related vocabulary, such as white privilege and, you know, people of color, for instance, but also just even racism or discrimination and I uh, ran a number of, of uh, analyses on Google Trends, and you find that you see a lot of, you know, greater search interest in a lot of these terms, not during, you know, the 2016 or even 2015 presidential campaign race, but in beginning around in, in 2012 and, and 2013, you see uh, spikes in the interest for search terms for white privilege, even even. You know, how can I be a better ally, you know, shows uh, increased interest. And I mean, some of those, you know, some have commented that, well, okay, well, maybe this is really just, you know, the campus reform conservatives, for example, you know, just wanting to hate on the libs and they're looking up all these terms. It's, you know, 
I, I actually found that, you know, the greatest search, the search interest actually correlates with blue states and the proportion of liberals in uh, a population. So I, I don't think all this is being explained by, you know, conservatives just curious, you know, or wanting, to, you know, material by on which they could hate on the libs. <laughs> I, I think a lot of this is also genuine interest on uh, in the part of you know, of, of, of liberals in, uh, in some of these, this terminology and some, and, and these topics. And what I also find is that around during these, the same period of time, you know, by the same period of time, I'm referring to the period between 2011 and I guess, uh, 2015, uh, you also find in the New York times, although the major spikes come obviously during, during, I guess the 2016 campaign and, and the Trump presidency, you do find even before that, during, you know, even 2012, 2013, you still start seeing increased percentage of New York Times articles that are referring to race-related topics, that are referring to racism, racist, racial inequality. You see greater uh, mentions of bigotry, for example, topics related to white bigotry, oppression, social justice, even sla a slavery, which you think, you know, slavery is not a new topic. I mean, it's been a part of our history. Even mentions of slavery have really shot up in the New York Times over the past few years, as has white uh, supremacy. Even the mentions of the word privilege have gone up. And for some of these terms, and granted, you know, uh, it's probably qualified that I haven't checked every single term, but you do find a close correspondence between the percentage of New York Times articles that are mentioning these terms and Google search interest in these terms. Through a mix of social and mainstream media, viral injustices like police shootings can now spread quickly and raise concern. In our the era of digital media, the lines, the boundaries between the producers, the purveyors of media and the consumers, they're becoming increasingly blurred, especially if you're uh, social media, for example. I mean, a lot of content that gets picked up now in, in the mainstream news and, you know, stems or emanates from social media. I mean, if you have social media, especially not only just social media, but everybody having a camera in their pocket, you know, now if I am feel if I'm out in public and I feel like I'm being mistreated or I'm being, you know, expelled from a, a local town pool. And I think this is, you know, because I'm black. Well, I could record the incident. I could send that to YouTube. That will be tweeted out you know, that will get a lot of retweets because as you know, a lot of research by Jay Van Bavel has shown that, you know, moral wrongdoing, moral injustices tend to really captivate audiences. And this really, generates a lot of retweets. And once things go viral, the, the, the mainstream media, the newspapers like the New York Times are going to pick up on it. And obviously the video didn't begin with the New York Times. It began with the, you know, just the public. So you do, the, the there is, I guess, the roles here, the, the traditional unidirectional, the media provide, you know, sets the agenda and they provide the content is becoming weaker in the digital era where now we have I guess uh, if you want to call them citizen journalists or just members of the public that decide to tweet things that go viral, you, you now also see the public playing, you know, I guess, also an agenda setting role. Wager says it's possible more empathy could be leading white liberals to change attitudes, but she's not sure if it will actually change their behavior when it comes to core economic issues. The theory I put forward is that the... the the connection between, you know, diversity and, lip and policy preferences is empathy. So, you know, if, if whites 
white liberals specifically are, you know, gaining more empathy for racial minorities, you know, the plights of racial minorities and are becoming more clear. And then, you know, maybe there will be more empathy. I mean, I'm not quite sure if it's, you know, just a reaction to the Trump, the Trump policies that's creating this kind of pushback. But I'd be interested to see how far white liberals will go in terms of you know, redistributive policy, specifically, you know, we're finally talking about reparations for slavery and that sort of thing. And whites may say it and, you know, say yes to that in a survey, but I'd be interested to know if they really will support it, you know, down the line when those those policies actually may become more tangible. She says people don't usually like to share with others, not like themselves. Social identities will shape people's preferences on who gets what. So in-group members are more likely to support policies when they share a social identity with the perceived beneficiary. And this is because people often perceive, you know, their in-group members as more similar to themselves than out-group members, and they'll feel closer, more connected to them, tend to feel greater empathy and responsibility towards them. And so, you know, if we think about, you know, salient social identities in the U.S., there's nothing more salient than race and arguably. And so, you know, I make the argument when people, you know, Americans know that we're becoming, you know, increasingly racially diverse and we're not the, the white, the, the majority white country that we were, at least how we were, you know, decades ago. I mean, when, you know, the New Deal was passed in the early 1930s, the country was about 90% white. And when LBJ's Great Society was implemented in the mid-60s, the country was about 87% white. And now, you know, we're about 75% white, you know, about 60%, you know, non-Hispanic white. So there's been a huge shift. And I think that because of this, you know, increase in diversity, there is this lack of lack of empathy that we have towards other citizens. And this affects, you know, how we how we think government should help others. She's able to take advantage of annual public opinion data and relate them to changes in diversity and inequality in the states. The idea that, you know, race is a big factor in people's race is a factor in Americans' redistributive preferences isn't necessarily novel, but sometimes it's difficult to get at causation with it. And a lot of the the trouble with this is typically this this finding has been relies on kind of cross-sectional evidence. So I wanted to look at things, how they've changed over time. So I used a time series model, a dynamic analysis, and I looked at annual public opinion for every state in the U.S. for almost five decades for every year. And I looked at the public opinion estimates I used were economic liberal estimates that were basically an aggregation of opinions over a variety of items related to the economy. So taxes, social welfare, and labor regulation. So very similar to Stimson's mood, just disaggregated by, by state and just in the economic domain. And so in these models, I looked at how the interaction between racial diversity and income inequality affected public liberalism, while also controlling for things, you know, that also might matter, you know, the the size of the population, the average income, unemployment rate, and so forth. So, so, and then I try to supplement my findings because they do rely on aggregated data with some individual data getting at my, my theorized mechanism, which is that when states are more diverse, people are less likely to see other people in the state as people like themselves. 
And so that's what I find just using a, a national survey from 2002. Income inequality and diversity are, of course, both increasing nationally, but they vary a lot by state. Income inequality has been rising since the 1970s, and where you know the share of income is concentrated, largest share of income is concentrated at the very top one percent or top 0.1 percent. But you know this kind of varies by where you're at. So the average person in the top one percent makes about 13 times more than the 99 percent in Maine. However, if you move to New York, for example, the average person in the top one percent makes 45 times more than the other 99%. And then racial diversity varies significantly as well. On average, you know, there has been some, some states are declined in their non-white population faster than others, but there's states like Maine, West Virginia, Vermont that are about 95% white and have kind of remained that way for, for decades. While, you know, there's other states, Georgia, Maryland, and so forth that kind of hover around the um, 60% white. She's also looked more specifically at welfare and education spending. Finding diversity inhibits liberal responses to inequality on both, but more for welfare. Economic public liberalism is is a measure that basically aggregates people's opinions on a variety of economic issues. So I wanted to see hey, does the finding hold up if we look at specific policies? And I basically, you know, estimated the same models as I did with economic public liberalism, but using support for welfare spending and education spending. And the time series for these were considerably shorter. I think they were about 20 years. But we, again, see the same general trend. In diverse states, the public response to inequality with preferences for less welfare and less education spending. And we see the reverse in homogeneous states. Welfare is a lot more racialized than, than education has been. But yes, the relationship is a lot stronger for welfare. Although people are bad at estimating diversity, Wager says they do notice its increase. There's been a couple of studies that have come out that say, hey, when when racial diversity changes, people pick up on it. Maybe they don't pick up on the magnitude accurately, but this is where a dynamic analysis kind of comes into play. People might not know right now what, you know, what percentage of the population is white in their state, but they may know if it's larger today than it was 20 years ago. And so, you know, another another avenue for future research is, you know, looking at, you know, what what units of analysis or what levels of analysis are more most important for people's attitudes. Is it their the metro area, the neighborhood, zip code, state, or do they maybe all kind of matter in different ways? And when they do, they identify less with people in their state. And in my paper, I point to several studies that indicate that people are aware of shifts in levels of inequality and racial diversity in their environment. But I wanted to demonstrate that variations in racial diversity can significantly shape how individuals' perception of other residents, how how they perceive those residents as people like themselves. And maybe more importantly, to see if this was consistent across races. And so I relied on a 2002 um, national survey, actually, that Elizabeth Tice Morse had used in her um, book on national belonging. And it was really useful because she asked respondents, how strongly do you feel a part of or identify with people from your state? And 
I found that when states are more racially diverse, state residents are less likely to feel like they're a part of the people in their state and controlling for a whole host of individual and and state level factors. And also when we disaggregate this by race, whites in particular are the most susceptible to a growing non-white population. So when the non-white population is higher, whites are less likely to identify with the people in their state. It's not just the diverse South, but a nationwide pattern. In my models, I run, you know, dummies for the South or fixed effects by state, and we still see the same the same relationship that the interaction between diversity and inequality significantly shapes public liberalism. So hopefully that can mitigate people's concerns somewhat, but I understand it. Wager says the European story suggests strong welfare states might be tied to homogeneity. The European story is interesting because, you know, throughout the 2000. 16 presidential primaries we heard you know bernie relentlessly say you know look at look at uh countries like sweden denmark these have strong social social welfare programs and since then there has been you've witnessed you know backlashes in those countries from residents that that due to the influx of immigrants and so we kind of see the same thing in in those countries that we've seen in others where do we go from here Goldberg is looking at the relationship between increasing racism perceptions and media use and comparing them to self-perceptions of discrimination by minorities. He finds that liberals might be overshooting as conservatives are undershooting. The relationship between social media use, and not just social media use, even you know those that report regularly reading the New York Times or regularly reading the Huffington Post, relationship between digital media consumption or even political social media consumption and higher perceptions, greater perceptions of discrimination or discriminatory treatment against uh, various social groups. One example that I mentioned in my tablet piece was the Pew 2016 racial attitudes survey, where if you create a variable that codes respondents by the the extent that they engage with race-related uh, social media, you know, how much they're, how frequently they're exposed to it, or what what proportion of the content they're exposed to relate to racial issues, you find that naturally those exposed to, you know, more higher uh, rates of, uh, of racial content perceive more discrimination. And you also find a relationship not just with the more specific race-related content exposure, but you also find that those that you know, use Twitter or Instagram, you, you do see that uh, there was one survey, I think it was an Associated Press survey, I tweeted a graph of it, showing that, that our, our Twitter users or Instagram users, they perceive that there's been increases in discrimination in the previous 12, 12 months against various social groups. So, so not just that there's greater discrimination, but that there, because the, the typical measures that I'm speaking of, you know, they ask you on a four-point scale, how much discrimination is there against this group? You know, is it not, you know, are they discriminated not at all? Is, is there a great deal or a lot? Find the relationship with social media and digital media use with that. But you also find it, you know, if you I were to ask you how much is that increase? Has, has there been increases in the past 12 months? And you also find a relationship between digital media use and reporting that there have been increases in discrimination against Muslims, against Blacks, even in some cases, I mean, although a lower proportion, but also against even Jews. The tricky part is really trying to assess accuracy. You know, to, to what extent do these perceptions, are they mapping onto the uh, social reality? 
And this is, uh, this is not an easy question to answer. How do we come up with, how do we construct a objective measure of, you know, personally experienced discrimination? The measures that I, I have that I've looked at, I mean, they, they are, I guess, more comprehensive than some of the measures that the NES fields in the sense that it asks, for example, how frequently uh, do people uh, act like they're afraid of you? How, how often do you receive poorer service than other people at restaurants? How often frequently are you followed in stores or how frequently are you, you know, mistreated by the police? And what you find is that the mean responses, you know, especially among blacks, I guess in the most recent survey that we have this data is uh, from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, their 2012 and 2014 waves. So you find that the mean responses, you know, tend towards hardly ever, or I, I guess earlier survey, they coded it according to, you know, less than, less than, you know, uh, once a year. So, you know, very, very rarely are the incidents uh, experienced at the uh, individual level. Now, it's just, it's just tricky to really assume accuracy because uh, liberals have a very, I guess, a broader conception of, of discrimination. May not necessarily just refer to, you know, uh, I guess, interpersonal discrimination, but also uh, structural discrimination as well. So this really makes it hard to really assess, I guess, accuracy. There has been some research, not on, on race, but on, in terms of social mobility, which found that liberals tend to under understate the extent of social mobility, whereas conservatives tend to uh, overstate it. And, and I think um, my theory is that liberals are are definitely, I guess, more type one error prone on this count, meaning they're more likely to, because they obviously view, uh, you know, very insensitive to injustices, they're more likely to overperceive, whereas conservatives may be more likely to underperceive. Wager's next step is to look more closely at two very white states with different politics, Vermont and West Virginia, and a diverse state like South Carolina. I'm doing a couple of case studies in my dissertation, one on West Virginia um, and one on Vermont and then one in South Carolina. And the West Virginia and Vermont's case studies are hopefully they're, you know, comparable, comparable cases where these are majorly white states and their politics are very different. And so kind of understanding what state level factors might influence the direction of, of politics there. And then also using a looking at a, you know, a very diverse state like South Carolina. And I mean, in my home district, one, Charleston, South Carolina, the, there was just a, in 2016, Joe Cunningham was elected, which was the first Democrat to be elected in that district since I think 1980. And that wouldn't fit in our conventional wisdom, given that South Carolina is pretty diverse and it's been increasingly non-white. So that's another case study that I wanted to look at. And then, I mean, there's a lot of other projects I have for this dissertation. One is, you know, we're basically, a lot of researchers are talking about public opinion towards inequality, how people see inequality and how they respond to it. But, but we really don't really quite have an in-depth understanding of what people see when they see inequality. We use these, these measures like the Gini coefficient or, you know, top 1% income share, and we think they matter for people's perceptions. But I really want to understand more about what people see when they see inequality. And there are surveys that indicate that people see that it's been rising over time. And so part of my research involves going out and talking to people. So in these case studies, I do focus groups and in-depth interviews and try to really do an in-depth look at what people are really talking about when they're talking about 
inequality and policies policies that address inequality. My last kind of thing that I'd like to look at is mostly, you know, when we're talking about public opinion towards redistributions, it's largely focused on whites' attitudes. But there's a paper by by Ashek and their colleagues in 2015 that finds that Blacks have been increasingly opposed to government redistribution as well as whites. And so part of my interviews and, and, and focus groups looks at African-Americans as well and their attitudes towards, towards redistribution. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Zach Goldberg and Emily Wager for joining me. Please check out America's White Saviors and People Like Us and then listen in next time.